Welcome everybody to the TechMeme Ride Home Experience. Uh, today is Wednesday, April 5th. We are joined by David Auerbach. David Auerbach is an author. He's a, a technologist. He's worked at Microsoft back in the day on MSN Messenger. He's worked at Google, um, back on the web crawler. So we wanted to talk to David uh, because personally I was in, I was in Greece in Athens recently um, and I was giving a, a talk for The Economist. Um, uh, kind of about how to really think about this current moment that we're in with regards to artificial intelligence and society and social media and all of these things. And um, I actually listened to an interview uh, with a friend of mine, Daniel Newham, um, with David. And a lot of the things that he was talking about related to his new book, Meganets, seemed really pertinent you know, to our audience, to our interest, to what we've been talking about. And so we, we invited David on to come give us a talk, or I guess to talk with us about some of these topics. And so um, with that, I guess, you know, welcome to the show, David. Thanks for having me, Chris and Brian. Yes, welcome, welcome. Uh, Chris, since I sure. am not as familiar uh, with uh, David's work as you are, because I didn't listen mm -hmm. to that episode. Um, <laughs> you did not do your homework. I know. Uh, the uh, Tee it off, because I already know what I want to get into with him, but... Um, Start it. Start it in the direction you want to go, and I'll follow. Yeah, you know, I think I think the thing that's going to be most useful um, to understand, because I felt a lot of resonance when I was listening to David, kind of like Bill tell his story, and then also like thinking about my own journey, you know, with social media and technology. Um, and so I kind of wanted to understand a little bit more just from the the earlier days of your experience. One working on MSN Messenger, which was one of the early chat applications, um, one of the first maybe examples of, of, a, of a social product or social application. Um, and then going to work, of course, at Google and its hyper growth era and period. And yeah. what, what that meant to you um, in terms of like, I, one thing that I kind of want to understand, and I think this is, this is true for both of us is like, there wasn't necessarily a master plan to get to where we <laughs> are now. And as a result, there was a lot of improv and, you know, now looking back, we can be like, Oh man, Maybe we should have known differently, but I'm curious about you know your experience, especially like starting out with Microsoft. Um, yeah, you know, building social products there. Oh, I, there was no master plan. Well, I mean, or at least any master plan that came up never came to fruition. Microsoft had many master plans back then, and most of them. Uh, I, I worked on a product uh, that was codenamed Hailstorm. Some people might remember it. Oh, uh, Microsoft Hailstorm. Uh, yeah, wasn't that really bad? It was never really anything. It never, oh. it never, it never, it was actually, I, I think the Microsoft de the developers conference, they announced it, but I don't think it ever came to fruition. That's it. You what, got lucky, what, what Chris, because that's a better answer than him saying, that was my baby. That's the dream I've been trying to return to for 20 years. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, the idea, I mean, like with a lot of these things, the the idea wasn't necessarily uh terrible but i don't think microsoft sort of was in the right mindset to build something like that they were still effectively uh client focused you know that was what that was what had happened in the 90s that they decided that they would bring the internet to windows instead of vice versa uh and i was working on the instant messenger client and that was one of the um uh that was that was one of their su successes in the internet realm but uh a lot of it was that their user base came from hotmail which they purchased and so like that it wasn't indicative of you know the longer term strategy so 
in effect, Microsoft was still operating as like a you know a, a boxed software uh, company at that point. That there there were companies that weren't, but Microsoft still had this idea of that in some ways everything was going to be based around shipping cds of this or that even if the internet was an auxiliary. what about bill gates famous like the road ahead you know where he was like talking about the future of the internet i mean was that was that just that was just like hyperbole and marketing speak i mean i mean i think that the let me see when did that come out when did the road ahead come out that because the book, there was i feel like that was the book was published no, because at that time, I think the goal was still that Windows would be the heart of it. That yes, yeah, of course, every, everything would be networked, but it would still be Windows connecting you to everything. Um, ironically, I mean, you can see a little of that happening now with Android. You know, with Android and, and, and the fact that Android and iOS effectively are the bases for uh, that we're moving away from a content neutral browser and towards apps and, and locking down. Okay. So, so oh. here, here, I, I looked up Hailstorm and Hailstorm was announced in 2001. Okay. 2001. That sounds right. Yeah. 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 It was right after September 11th. That's right. Yeah. Yes. So can this I, is also, can hold, I hold jump on, in? Yeah, go ahead. Hold on. And so uh, what's interesting about Hailstorm was this is a .NET framework which is again, sort of, you know, the Microsoft, you know, way of building applications. And it was described as a new breed of platform consisting of a set of XML based web services and an mm -hmm. underlying services architecture. And so, you know, 2001 and how we used to talk about things, but then it goes on to talk about, oh God, what is it? Okay. Uh, Hailstorm employs the passport user authentication system. So identity was even big back then. Mm -hmm. you know, this is, yeah. uh, oh God, what was right. the old um, identity format that, oh, SAML, SAML, anyways. Uh, to secure an, an individual's identity and information, both Passport and the Hailstorm services require affirmative consent and explicit opt-in by the user for the release of any personal information. And it talks about how this starts with a fundamental assumption that the user owns and controls their personal information, so only the user decides with whom they share their information and under what terms. Now, it's so mind-blowing to me to sort of go back and to think about some of these core concepts that were in flight back then. And to think about obviously where we've come and how you know Zuckerberg and Bill Gates are kind of you know buddies and there's a mentoring relationship, and to see how these core ideas of platforms yeah. were established back then. I mean, that entire idea of identity was there, and and it was it was key is that people are going to have these correlating identities online. And whoever's in charge of adjudicating them and handing them out stands to make a tremendous amount of money. Uh, Passport was one Thanks of those did. efforts, and my, you know Google was upfront about trying to do it with uh, uh, with, uh, with Plus, you know, the, the Google Plus identity service. Um, and I write in in my book Meganets. I talk about how that sort of online identity is happening. It's coalescing. You can see it in India right now with the government Aadhaar program. That you know, as as our as the amount of information we have online multiplies, the wish to coalesce such things does grow. Uh, but is it going to be Microsoft or Google adjudicating it? Who is it going to be adjudicating it? I don't know. But it, it, there is going to be that drive towards coalescing it, um, and and that does pose certain risks. I think. Um, so yeah, when I, I mean when I made the jump from Microsoft to Google, it was like stepping into another world because. There was no, you know, nothing was being shipped in a box. This was a, a truly an internet service and it was on a scale that Microsoft, yeah, that Microsoft hadn't come to terms with. I was like, oh, okay, these people really 
you know, know how to run servers and, and, and build out server infrastructure in a far more advanced way, you know, well beyond anything. And Microsoft had to play catch up with, uh, uh, at this point, they seem to have done so, but it took them quite a while. But making that jump, it was like, oh, okay, we're stepping from this sort of unidirectional world where you give software to people and what they do with it, well, they, there's bug reports and all, but in effect, they're passive recipients. Um, and well, and that gradually broke down. Uh, you know, that Google, you know, at first it was pretty much web content publishers that had the most influence. Their, influ their, their input is actually feeding into how the creation of whatever it is that Google's doing. Uh, but it wasn't until you get to the social media age that you start getting that feedback loop to get tighter and tighter and tighter until, in effect, you get this, you get basically powers devolving onto the users and um, programmers and uh, corporations and governments don't have the same level of control that they used to because this information is flying around and conditioning and tweaking the parameters of uh, all these algorithms, not just AI. AI, I think, is the most extreme version of this. But, you know, what I saw was the increasing um, influence that uh, we all collectively had, while well, none of us individually having a uh, decisive say over it. And that's in the book, I, that, you know, that's that sort of system is what I call a mega net which is one in which, you know, there's a feedback loop between the users and the systems such that even the, uh, such, such that there's no coordinated human um, uh, organization that can keep up with what uncoordinated human activity is doing. And you don't need AI for it to get out of control in that way. AI can exacerbate it because now you're putting it through, you know, a machine learning network that is very opaque in its uh, in its workings. But you have simple recommendation algorithms, or, or, or you know, much simpler mecha much simpler mechanisms of any sort. You're still going to get to this point that you can't exert any fine grained control over how how the recommendation algorithms, feed algorithms, you name it, are being shaped. Let me, um, I, I want to come to the thesis of Meganets, but I, I can't resist pulling this anecdote in because we mentioned it and it's my favorite anecdote from, oh, a book that I wrote. But um, Bill Gates agreed to write The Road Ahead. It came out in November 1995 and the index of the hardcover edition had 68 references to the term information highway and 46 references to the term internet and four references to the World Wide Web. About a year later, in the paperback version, the internet suddenly took 169 references and the web suddenly had 59 mentions. So from the paperback to the, to the hardcover, he tried to act like he had the vision all along, which is, um, you know, we, if, if we all Sounds had a good editor. Yeah, if we I all had the chance, that. if we all had the um, chance to uh, revise ourselves between the hardcover and the paperback, yeah. we'd look like geniuses. Um, okay, so the thesis that's, of that's really funny. I I was actually not aware of that. Uh, it is one of my favorite anecdotes. From I mean, that era. I, when I was you know when I was writing this book, I was very concerned with future proofing it, future proofing it as best as I could. So yeah, we got into the debates of oh, you need to talk about the metaverse. And mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. so every time, every time I mentioned the metaverse, 
I put in a little, you know, sort of caveat of, or whatever it is that these <laughs> things are being called <laughs> in 10 years. Sorry, and this is sort of relevant. Are you familiar with another book called Meganet? Uh, you know what? I not until after, not until it was way too late. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I remember uh, by Wilson Dizard. Yes, yes. I, exactly. I did not. I literally did not run across this book until. Like, what, so what? What like what? I'm, in, in some ways, I, I don't mean to like tease this out like too. Uh, I don't know eh, to make it too big of a thing, but what I'm finding interesting is sort of like the the return of some ideas and some concepts yeah. that have been around in the, like the computing world, world for a while. The fact, so I was wrong, as you, as you said, Brian, about when Bill Gates published the book. It was 95, not 99. 99 is when I graduated high school. Uh, but Meganet, the first version, well, not the first version, but the, the Dizzard book was published in 97. And the subtitle of that book was The Global Communications Network That Will Collect Everyone on Earth. And it was about... Uh, mobile phones and mobile phone penetration so i find yeah. this to be very interesting right because now you know 20 some odd years later you're sort of coming back and in some ways revisiting and like building on the observation of what was happening then with just connecting yeah. people through cell phones well, now we're moving to a world i should have called, called it giganets yeah yeah well perhaps perhaps it'll be the the sequel right, yeah, right, the sequel. Yeah, yeah yeah well you know if bill gates can rewrite part of his book into the next edition you know when you have the paperback version yours can be the giganet in any case, I think what you're talking about, broadly speaking, with this concept of, of your Meganet, is the idea of the feedback loops getting faster and faster. And yeah. your transition from Microsoft, from a model of boxed software, where you were literally pressing CDs, shipping them out, and every year you'd have a release cycle. I mean, this is how Adobe built its business. This is why Figma had the advantage. You know, yeah. Adobe was still very much predicated on having releases, whereas when you go to Google, now you're in a world where the code is being updated, you know, hundreds of times a day, where like release management is a whole new discipline in terms well, of cadence. I think you can go beyond that, the, you know, because the algorithm, they're mm -hmm. auto-updating. That's, it, it, you sure. know, that, that mm -hmm. there's new, new code is being rolled out at, dis, at discrete but very quick intervals. But moreover, it's not, you know, you, all the weights of the algorithms are changing in response to user mm. feedback. So you literally are, you know, it's, it's, it's Heraclitus. Mm. You can't walk in the same river twice, you know, and that wasn't <laughs> right. that fundamentally wasn't true 25 years ago, but it's true now that, that, you know, there's no easy guarantee that you're going to get the same output uh, twice in a row. Yeah. And that I think people underestimate what a profound thing that is to say that, because what it, we think of, so much of what we think of as how we control and test algorithms starts with the assumption of being able to push a reset button that we can start with known uh, identical conditions and test in sort of a uh, an isolated like white box environment. And you can't do that's that's becoming more and more impossible. And I, I from my perspective, that 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 is as big a part of how we've lost control as anything else that there's no reset button that you're just dealing with dealing with this ongoing these ongoing evolving systems whose value lies not in their algorithms per se though they contribute to it but in their ongoing state you know if you if you were to shut down facebook and restart it from scratch you've just thrown away most of the value that facebook has uh, so, you know, and, and I think, you know, the, 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 the rise of deep learning, machine learning, whatever, 
is is an analogy and an extension of that because here you have these systems that uh, the algorithms are brilliant but you have to train them <laughs> what are you training them on you're training them on the massive amount of data that we're now producing that we didn't produce uh even 20 years ago but i one of my favorite statistics is that we now produce more data every day than was produced in the entire history of humanity before the year 2000. so one of the things that that, ahead, that that ties exactly into the question i the thesis of the book being in, a, in broad terms that people think, oh, uh, you know, these companies have control over their algorithms or even their, their fundamental businesses. But even in reality, they don't. They're just kind of riding a dragon that maybe they don't have control over. So my, my, my fundamental question is, is that the nature of the business that they're in or is that a business model decision? You know what I mean? Like, is, is the scale so large that no one would ever reasonably be expected to have their hand on the tiller or are they deciding for whatever reason maybe monetarily whatever to 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 not have more control i mean primarily the former now it's not to say that you can't do things you know, i get into this that you can do things to try to arrest the, the degree of the loss of control um uh, like when Facebook banned all political advertising in the run-up to the 2020 uh, election. Well, that's actually, uh, you know, you aren't going to eliminate misinformation on a case-by-case basis, but did that, that sort of like broad, gr fairly content-neutral, like coarse-grained intervention, that actually can do something. So if you want to look at it from the perspective of, okay, could Facebook um, mitigate, you know, uh, sheer chaos yes there are options however there is nonetheless a degree of fine-grained control that you're just never going to get period simply because the size of the the size speed and feedback of these systems is just too bad too fast sorry if you want to go in and you know literally scan every piece of content that's going through facebook or twitter and eliminate the bad stuff for whatever definition of the bad stuff you want that's not possible it's not as though you know when people are saying like stop getting people to be so mean on the internet no that's not possible now the companies um haven't exactly been upfront in admitting to that you know uh <laughs> because i think they actually would rather be thought of as as greedy than as out of control but uh I mean, there's stuff they let through that is they don't make any appreciable money off of, and that's just vile. And you know why? That, that's a loss of control. That's not. That's not great. So you know they could be more honest. And I mean, you could also say, okay, well, um, why don't we just shut everything down? I suppose a company could do. They have that degree of control um that's not going to happen either i think but uh with regard to coarse grain mechanisms yeah they have some degree of control but the myth that oh if only they wanted to things could be nice and the way we used to remember them no I, that's not that's not happening 
We're being sponsored today by a company on a product that longtime listeners know I have used for years and cannot literally cannot live or at least work without it. One Password. One Password combines industry-leading security with award-winning design to bring private, secure, and user-friendly password management to everyone. Companies lose hours every day just from employees forgetting and resetting passwords. A single data breach costs millions of dollars. One Password secures every sign-in to save you time and money, any device, any time. One Password lets you securely switch between iPhone. Android, Mac, and PC with convenient features like autofill for quick sign-ins. All you have to remember is the one strong account password that protects everything else. Your logins, your credit cards, secure notes, or the office Wi-Fi password. 1Password generates as many strong, unique passwords as you need and securely stores them in an encrypted vault that only you have access to. I started using 1Password, what, a decade ago? Join me and over 100,000 businesses on board the 1Password bandwagon. Because right now, my listeners get a free two-week trial at onepassword.com slash ride. That's two free weeks at the number one, the word password, all one word, dot com slash ride. Onepassword.com slash ride. Want a better way to simplify your business finances across expenses, vendor payments, and accounting? If so, Ramp could be a complete game changer. Ramp is the corporate card and spend management software designed to help you save time and put money back in your pocket. Ramp gives finance teams unprecedented control and insight into company spend. With Ramp, you're able to issue cards to every employee with limits and restrictions and automate expense reporting so you can stop wasting time at the end of every month. Ramp's accounting software automatically collects receipts and categorizes your expenses in real time so you don't have to. You'll never have to chase down a receipt again and your employees will no longer spend hours submitting expense reports. The time you'll save each month on employee expenses will allow you to close your books eight times faster. Ramp's also saves you money. Businesses that use Ramp save an average of 5% the first year. Ramp is easy to use. Get started, issue virtual and physical cards, and start making payments in less than 15 minutes, whether you have five employees or 5,000. And now, get $250 when you join Ramp. Just go to ramp.com slash techmeme. Ramp.com slash techmeme. R-A-M-P dot com slash techmeme. One of the, one of the things um, that, I, that I thought was pretty interesting was um, you you wrote in in 2015 when you were um, describing machine learning, which you know, given the timing, I thought was a pretty early. Um, and you wrote this um, for for Slate. Um, you wrote, and, and this sort of was describing the shift from you know somewhat like declarative deterministic programming, where you right. sort of build an app, you press some buttons, you know. Like you press the copy button and it copies, and then you press paste so and it pastes. So beautiful, right? So yes, beautiful. to a world which is somewhat more probabilistic. So you wrote the yeah. question then is why would one want to generate opaque and unpredictable networks rather than writing strict, effective programs oneself? And the answer, as Pedro Domingos told you, was that complete control over the details of the algorithm doesn't scale, and that there are three related aspects to machine learning that mitigate this problem. One. It uses probabilities rather than the true-false binary. Now, of course, this sort of goes back to your book, Bitwise. Uh, two, humans accept a loss of control and precision over the details of the algorithm. And three, the algorithm is refined and modified through a feedback process. So why I think this is so relevant you know, to, to revisit seven years later is because we are now in the enthralling kind of era of scaled machine learning and artificial intelligence where everyone slowly but surely is going to realize that they are part of this feedback mechanism that as you say like this process of 
moving to a world of sort of probabilistic software is more like living in weather patterns. And, you know, what do we have? We have weather people that attempt to predict the weather and they could be right 50% of the time and keep their jobs. In a similar way, we have these large scale AI systems that are, we attempt to predict their outputs. We attempt to improve them through modeling predictions that get better over time. But we also have to improve their performance through reinforcement mechanisms, whether human or virtual. Right. And, so, and, and yeah, I mean, at some point you're going to need AIs to assess the performance of AIs. And well, you can see where you can see where the circular dependency originates that at some point it's like you're measuring yardsticks with yardsticks. And how are you going to find what the, right. What the right yardstick is? And no, that's a that's a real it's a real issue. Um, uh, this is why I think all those debates about uh, machine bias and things miss the point a bit, because we're going to have trouble just determining whether something is biased. You can say, um, uh, how do you, you know, how are you going to audit, just e even at a black box level, how do you audit the performance? There are definitely ways to do it if in controlled scenarios, but if everything's changing so fast, it's going to be a real problem. I think, but, but isn't like, I mean, to your, to your commentary about like never stepping into the same river twice, like, isn't the nature of reality, and, you know, this is going to get metaphysical very quickly, so, you know, warning to the, the listeners, but if, if, if reality is constantly and always changing, then one of the challenges with durable memory systems is that they attempt to record, like, a steady state of reality in a certain moment of time and persist it eternally. But everything is changing constantly, and so you need to have a system that in and of itself has the ability to constantly be kind of updating its model, adjusting its model. I mean, even the, the use of the word bias, like an entire neural network is based on a set of biases in the system exactly. towards <laughs> an interpretation of reality. Exactly. So I, I guess like where this leads me to is, is the, the change that is about to become like common uh, in, in society and the world is one in which we have this new type of relationship, this emergent relationship that is a co-modification between our sense of self and our sense of the machine that we're working with. And that from one moment to the next, you know, I may be using my chat, you know, software or something, and then it may have updated. And we, you know, we see this with auto-updating software now, you know, yeah. I am one of those strange holdouts that still wants to update all my apps on my phone. But for most people, their apps and their app experience is very much like the web. You know, they go there one day and some day, you know, the feature has changed or the search index is updated. Right. Something is different. Things have moved. Instagram is constantly moving things around, taking things, you know, A-B testing, whatever. So even the fact of software is becoming one that is a lot more fungible and a lot more changeable. Yeah. And so and that creates not, a little bit of incoherence. Well, that's, you know, it's funny you bring this up and that, yeah, yeah, this was true at Google back back 20 yeah. years ago with search with ranking i didn't work on ranking why because it was subject subject to exactly these sorts of feedback probabilistic mm -hmm. mechanisms that made it very difficult i wanted to build something that went mm -hmm. from zero to 100 percent accuracy ah. and the ranking people are miserable trying to get from 70 percent to 71 <laughs> percent exactly. and they're having trouble just figuring out whether something's an improvement or not just so i mean those issues were seen in miniature then uh, mm -hmm. the, 
Google, I think, was very fortunate in that they hit a gold mine. They hit the gold mine where they had this mechanism, this context in which people would tell them exactly what they were looking for so they could sell ads on exactly what they were looking for. I don't think there's been anything like that since then. I don't think Facebook found it. I don't, you know, I don't, no one else has found a gold mine app Google did on the internet. It just, they were just, they just, they found it at the right time and they grabbed it. Um, but even then, you know, what, how, how the relevancy of search results, I think, you know, it, it was about like 70%, but that's okay. You don't need search results to be 70%. So the issue, and they were, you know, they were using machine learning like mechanisms. They were using Bayes nets and things like that. You know, those AI things were in play, uh, just not at the level that you see them now. And they weren't being used on analog data as, as, as you see them now. But uh, but those things were in play, and you were seeing this, yeah, that, that loss of control. Also, because the webmasters would then change around all of their stuff to to try to gain right. the engine, right. and Google would have to go back and and change it again. So there was also the users, in terms of the webmasters, um, shaping shaping how how the ranking algorithms worked, um, and uh, so, but. It still was it worked very well for a while, you know. Well, but so, so I think I think one thing that's important about this observation and this point about the dynamic between search and then webmasters and what became the industry of search engine optimization is the yeah. same thing. If you imagine, like you know, the the bazaar, you know, thousands of years ago, where you know being closest to like the entryway is going to help you have a better business. So in a similar way, someone comes to the market, they're looking for I don't know, grapes or wine, perhaps. And you know, if you're closer to the entryway, then, then of course you'll you'll do more business. So what I'm what I'm teasing out though is that there is this dynamic in the feedback loops that were starting with Google. Essentially, there was this back and forth that, that seemed to be uh, happening where Google would do one thing and it would, you know, like there was a whole panda uh, kind of search algorithm change that affected a bunch of people etc webmasters learned how to design their pages to do keyword stuffing again and all these remember things. remember chris i'm an entrepreneur yeah. who has scars from yes these words, that's true so, yes you, yes. Uh, you are you you're you on the battlefield uh of, of of that era but like my point is though is that this is this is kind of evidence of those early meganets like forming where yeah. there was kind of a command and response or and a market opportunity you know where there were yeah. incentives, and then and those incentives. I cover that, in, and I cover that in the book exactly because that was that was when we see it forming, and that was when I observed what I thought was if there was a single assumption, shared false assumption. I think uh, tech tech companies, programmers, product managers, all of us, we all underestimated the degree of influence that users collectively would have on the system. It just it didn't it wasn't a way we didn't think of it in those terms it, why would we you know it didn't it didn't make sense historically it the the idea of making something and the users being passive recipients was still there even though you know we were now surviving on you know, the, the, these industries were based on content provided by the users and so I think, and I don't think that people even began to have an inkling until the era of social media, 
because at that point it really starts to get out of control and you start to see actual you know side effects i mean we we had a oh it's so seos can be so annoying or whatever but i think there was always a <laughs> sense of like whatever we'll just you know, right. it, you know there was no doubt about who was going to win you know the seos are annoying but we're in charge well as it turns out <laughs> turns out the more, the, yeah the more you know the more the more of a voice people have and the faster these systems are working the more you're giving up control. And I think that that is the main fallacy that we all have, uh, because I can't think of anyone that I knew who was talking about user influence, collective user influence in that way. Um, and uh, as I said, I mean, I, I was wary of it. I didn't like, I didn't like just the unpredictability of it. But I didn't. But at that time, I didn't see it as going so far in this direction. It 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 occurs to me that again, like this is to put it in like historical context. We've been talking about putting software in a shrink wrap box and selling it on a shelf or whatever. But if you think of the 20th century and you create a product like a car, you sell that car to the end user, <laughs> to borrow that term. And that's kind of it with your relationship with them. I mean, you get feedback in terms of yeah. this model year sold better than that model year or whatever. Like the fact that in a digital economy, there is no sell it and it's done. And we were talking about like iterating different versions and, and, and such like that. But also, like, that's part of the nature of selling a digital product is that you have all of this feedback so that it's almost like, as the producer of the product, you're overwhelmed by what you're learning about how it's used as well. Like, yeah, I mean, you become followers as much as leaders, and I think that I think this is true across the board. I think that you know, if you look at, I think Elon Musk has maintained influence in part because he actually jumps on currents that are already in play, and that we see that. You know, names become figureheads. I mean, albeit you know, very rich and powerful figureheads, but that you know, someone can just become the voice and and uh, figurehead of what is actually uh, a more decentralized or at least leaderless movement because you've got systems that are grouping similar people together who share similar interests who can then exert themselves in a in, in a coordinated way that wasn't possible before. And this can happen organically without anyone like driving it because all you need to do is to say, okay, look, give people more of what they want and introduce them to other people who want the same things. And that by itself is enough to sort of start the ball rolling. Um, you want another fun anecdote, uh, which you may or may not be aware, but when I had uh, Matt Cutts on the Internet History Podcast, he said that one of the ways that they um, got uh, – intelligence from the SEOs is they would go to the SEO conferences and be very friendly and take them out for drinks or whatever. And he was like, after a few drinks, they would just tell you, they would just yeah. tell you what they're doing. <laughs> Matt, Matt's, Matt's a great, Matt's a great guy. I didn't know him well, but uh, he had a fairly thankless job and did it really, really well. Yeah. Yeah. I don't didn't know where he, he is now, actually. I think he, yeah. Yeah. He 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 would, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, at Classic. least three or four years ago. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. I think that's right. Matt, he, Matt he works went, for, yeah. The White House. Really? 
Yeah, he is. <laughs> he was the current head of the USDS, and that was as of 2018. Yeah, he was interesting. Yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. Yes. I had no idea. Uh, well, he was. I mean, he was really the point person on on that that thing, and he did an he did an amazing job. He was really he was really the crux of it. Uh, uh, really? Yeah. He handled a lot of people getting very upset with him on a regular basis. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, it, it does, to your point about Elon Musk, it is sort of like the kind of thing where now it's not just like, again, walking in and out of the river and it's a different river. It's now actually finding kind of like the currents and riding those currents and in such a way where you're kind of like, like a, a multipolar identity or personality such that there are many people, many actors in the system that are all kind of convening on you, as you said, like the figurehead that is drawing the ire of many different groups, both, you know, yeah. positive, negative, and whatever. And that balance seems to be the thing that kind of keeps people, I don't know, in the, yeah. in the, in the public eye or something. Or another example was, uh, you know, the GameStop stonk guy. Uh, yeah, exactly. His name. Do you remember his name? He testified in I front of his name. But yeah. it seemed very clear he wasn't some mastermind. He happened to basically be in this right place at the right time and yep. was a visible person talking about GameStop. But he, in fact, was representing a disparate group of people. He wasn't some, uh, you know, demagogue who was hyping people up. He was one more YouTube celeb. And where has he gone? I don't know. You know, these people are, they, they rise and they, and they, uh, and they, and they... I, I could be wrong, but I believe he's suing Reddit because they... <laughs> <laughs> yes, they shut it down, right? Or yeah, something, or something or... Like that. But anyway, really? I, I, that could be wrong. Yeah. Listen, I do a daily news show, so uh, I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, a lot of co comes about, across your turn from yeah three hours ago. Uh, but um, can I can I jump in real quick and then uh, Chris back to you? Um, one of the other things that I think you get into is this idea that um, you know, oh, what what Facebook and Google need to do is just take all the misinformation and the bad stuff out. Um, and then that'll fix everything. And especially as AI is coming, I'm, uh, I'm curious your thoughts on that to me sounds like absolutely the, 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 the horses are out of the barn. Should we be thinking about not finding ways for average users or most users to not never see anything false or bad or whatever, but find a way to identify what they're seeing um, for what it is, X, Y, Z. I'm sorry, I'm rambling. So go ahead and, and let me know your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, my sense is that even identifying it is tricky enough and that because unless there's something that you can get, you know, 95% agreement on, and there's not a lot of that these days, then you're always going to have then there's it's very difficult to locate um where that authority should lie if it's in private companies i don't think private companies even want that it's nothing but a headache for them if it's the government well they have tons of restrictions on exactly how they can adjudicate this themselves you know the idea the problem is is that the myth of you know the the section 230 of the communication decency act is that um is that there aren't any of these networks that are truly unfiltered every, anymore. Everybody's exerting some control. And you saw that the Supreme Court heard hearings earlier this year where it seemed like the, the justices were, were genuinely torn because 
they recognized that uh, that these weren't sort of just neutral carriers in the way that, say, a phone network was. But at the same time, they did seem to recognize, wait, how on earth are you going to uh, are you going to make Google responsible for everything that's on their network? What the heck? They literally can't do it. So they're they're confronted. I think you're going to be confronting a lot of these problems legally because you're there's going to be basically total pressure not to accrue any liability to any company of a big size. They want to devolve responsibility onto individual users. But unfortunately, since individual users don't control the distribution of what they say, it becomes a, it becomes a paradox. So that's why my suggestion is is to say look you know you're not going it's just going to be whack-a-mole no matter what if you're going if you want to address it you're going to have to look at just things like basically slowing down viral spread of everything not of specific types of content because identifying specific types of content um in ways that a you know a super majority of the population won't find objectionable or wrong-headed is is not feasible um now there are exceptions if you you know if there's some huge earthquake that okay no one's going to just hopefully not too many people are going to dispute that so you know the rawest of urgent news you can still sort of prioritize in that way so wait but so anything wait. else you're so what you're describing is people have pejoratively called shadow banning but you're not saying shadow banning for specific things you're almost saying turning the temperature down on the virality of everything yeah well i and i would say don't shadow because well if you shadow ban everyone then nobody's shadow banned right right right, right. so what i would say is it, effectively the louder something gets make it quieter introduce some negative feedback um and break break up homogeneous groupings in other words you know there's this assumption that people that you should give people what they want and so all these algorithms are designed to give people things that stoke engagements things that get like what they want that in itself is a lot more problematic than people seem to think because giving people what they want is not always the greatest idea um and it's just that was a way to sort of kick the can down the road well we're not going to decide what you want we're just going to give what you want uh unfortunately i think we're seeing that uh, that there's some emergent properties when you do that that lead to nastiness like if you give people what they want and what they want is some really is stuff that a lot of other people think is bad or whatever you've just exacerbated it so but this, i think this raises like a very interesting generational or like generational x societal or cultural question you know which is to the degree to which these things are kind of you know bad for us both individually and collectively it's it's almost like an information nutrition problem and you know we've had to learn and teach ourselves over time what is like sort of a balanced and healthy approach to consuming calories and a distribution of calories and proteins and vitamins and all the rest in order to maintain something of a healthy uh existence in a similar way i think the question of like digital health uh or god what was the word i used anyways going along those lines hygiene. Is, hygiene thank you yes I, I call it data hygiene um there's a question as to the degree to which we need to teach people about these systems about how they are affected by these systems and also how they affect the systems themselves and yet i guess you know and, and 
I'm curious if, if you touched on this in the book, like what are interventions that could actually yeah. happen at scale where you change the fitness function of humanity to be so handling they, or to be living within the meganet? That's the, that's the, that's the last chapter of the book, which is what you can do. Okay, great. <laughs> that is because I think that these meganets are, you can't, you can't educate people enough because it's like saying it's like educating people to recycle and use less fuel. It's not and doesn't make enough of an impact. You need some sort. But it's got to be a both ends. I mean, because we now like look, we are. This is the first 2023 was the first year that people mm -hmm. are able to use something like ChatGPT in all aspects of their educational experience. However. Education now is changing in terms of its function in society and culture because you can just ask ChatGPT to do ninety percent of the work or more for you. Right. And right. And as you know, and as I know, the cleverness of people is such that they will find ways to use and incorporate these tools in very subtle ways. Yeah. To, you know, I, I remember you told a story about MSN Messenger and AOL Instant Messenger and how you sort of had forced or adversarial interoperability. Yeah. That is an example of the type of cleverness that humans will invent to get around what other types of censorship or kind of prohibitions that may be invented. I mean, prohibition itself right. was something that people found their way around. So yeah, what like in your view, how do we prepare people to like be able to take advantage of these tools while not also usurping, to use your word, I, their own sense of self-sovereignty? Yeah, I mean I think we're doomed on that one. But like I, the thing is, no, no, no. We're looking. And we, thank you for coming. Gradually in. outsourcing. <laughs> we're outsourcing more and more of our thoughts, labor, whatever to uh, to computers, uh, and right. that, that's just the way that things are going. You aren't going to. Uh, you, you aren't going. So, so the self has already, I think, changed inalterably. I think that you know this idea. You know the existentialist idea of oh you're a blank slate you can reinvent yourself at mm -hmm. any time well no you now got a huge digital paper trail a mile long everybody knows what you've been so in other words your, your identity yeah. has already been getting locked down in ways that it never was locked down before so i think we are looking at a fundamental change of identity i think we're looking at an identity that's much more quantified people are defining themselves much more with labels labels upon labels upon labels so uh, um um, you know, and you can argue whether that's good or bad. Um, I'm not a fan of it, but whatever, it's here. Uh, my concern is more in terms of, I, I think, um, preventing sort of those viral, ex harmful viral explosions mm -hmm. in which uh, there is a sudden shock or destabilization of the system that causes massive damage you know, akin to that of like the 2008 financial crisis and high frequency. As I was like, SVB. Right? Yeah, and, like is there an know, equivalent in yeah. the information system such that an SVB style information trauma would not have right. cascading well, I mean, effects? Right, and I mean you're seeing that happen with with cryptocurrency because you know whatever right. we've seen in cryptocurrency is nothing compared to what we're going to see because it's getting more and more uh, integrated into the global financial system. And uh, if you look at you know at FTX, it's like. How did these people uh, convince anyone that they were serious in, in retrospect? And part of that is because um, uh, there's so much information that validating information, uh, you know, and and making sober assessments of, oh, is this insane or not? Is this offshore crypto company? 
uh, saying or not, I suspect it was done because they had the right pedigree, and that was basically the shorthand. Yeah. Well, they had all the labels uh, that would identify them as being credible or right. worthy of being believed or believable right. in the network archaeology. Or, right. Yeah, and as a and result, think, they, they yeah. Whereas you know, a few decades ago, you wouldn't have just needed that. You would have also had to come into a room and schmooze with people. Right. It wasn't necessary. And I mean, I'm not saying that that was perfect at all. It led to nepotism of a different sort. But what we're seeing now is that you can actually do this remotely and it opens the door to, to mm. people's BS detectors not firing because yeah. right. everything... They have been trained on these, these types of bacteria. Totally. Right, Brian? Guys, we don't have to choose between hair growth and our health. Nutrafol's drug-free, whole-body approach promotes hair growth from within. No compromises, just better hair. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist-recommended hair growth supplement brand with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster-growing hair with less shedding. With Nutrafol, building a hair growth routine is simple. Purchase online, no prescription or doctor's visits required. Free shipping and automated deliveries ensure you'll never miss a day. See results in three to six months. While many supplements rely solely on ingredient studies, Nutrafol clinically tests final formulations to ensure their efficacy. In a clinical study, 84% of men showed improvement in their hair after six months taking Nutrafol's men's hair growth supplements. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair for a limited time. Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com men and enter the promo code RIDEHOME. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com slash men, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, and enter promo code RIDEHOME. Recently, the world learned the power of artificial intelligence, a technology cybersecurity leaders have been leveraging for years. Now, as AI expands and evolves, those same security leaders are left wondering where humans fit into the next generation of AI-empowered security tools and solutions. Arctic Wolf, the industry leader in managed security operations, seeks to answer this question in their newly published report, The Human-AI Partnership. Access the insights of over 800 cybersecurity decision makers in North America and the United Kingdom to better understand how organizations are weighing the benefits and risks of deploying AI tools. Uncover the biggest obstacles to turning AI and human engineers into a formidable team. Discover why the near-term benefits of large language models are being upended by a crucial flaw in the technology. And learn what the rise of AI tools mean for human practitioners moving forward. Get your copy today at arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. That's arcticwolf.com slash techmeme. Yeah, uh, taking it 15 degrees to the right or left a little bit. um, We have thousands of listeners that work at big tech companies, tech platforms that I don't think any of them will be surprised at your assertion that no one's really in control, <laughs> you know? I know, um, I know. They don't. So, yeah, I know. I, so, I, that's why I start off the book. I say, you know, there's this conversation I have where people is like, well, why don't you just fix that? And all the engineers I know are like, <laughs> this is Okay, well, so I guess maybe this is unfair, but my question was going to be a listener like that, that, that believes either in their company or in their original, why did I get into tech? I want to you know, make a dent yeah. in the universe. 
if you're working at these platforms, do you have any advice for those folks who want to make them better? I mean, yeah, I think that what you want to look at is what interventions actually have been effective. Um, and I mean, to some extent, you know, even the people on the ground, I'd say this from experience, you know, you're, often engineers are being told to do impossible, do impossible things by executives. So they, they may also, I don't have advice on how to change that, I'm afraid, but, uh, but I feel, I, the advice I give at the end of the book or, or some suggestions is to look at these not as non-targeted mechanisms of, of making recommendation algorithms, uh, you know, you know met with them and, and, um, breaking up homogeneous coagulations of social groupings and content groupings. Uh, and, and in effect, you know, not, requiring a greater degree of data validation you know there's so much data that goes through that often is not accurate you know facebook thought i was black for a number of years they may still um i didn't tell them that uh i don't know where they got that from if there was more of an emphasis on even validating um you know uh you know elective third-party data uh, that would do something for it, but you wouldn't even have to validate it. You could just poison it and say, okay, look, we're not, uh, uh, we're not going to take that. We're not going to go on the assumption that this data is correct, or we're just going to intentionally corrupt it because we can't validate it anyway. So mix things up. I know TikTok was actually trying to share, show more heterogeneous content to people after, um, a lot of like pro anorexia videos were getting shown and recommended. Uh, that's the, that's the sort of thing that I think can work is that you're not looking at stamping that, stamping that stuff out. You just don't want, uh, you just want people to be taken out of, uh, a, a sort of a, a narrative bunker in which everything they see has the same set of shared assumptions. You're kind of talking about sort of introducing some decay perhaps into the system, some way to get people out of their kind of information cul-de-sac that, that, I, that sort of... I think that's i think that will help a lot yeah along with the sort of the the negative feedback mechanisms to decrease viral spread and prevent anything from uh from from uh blowing up too big uh too quickly yeah yeah i so mean one I of the things that experiment experimenting with those sorts of uh what i would suggest to people who are um Work at the work at these companies. Um, uh, I mean, the thing is, these companies themselves are are frequently huge entities. So the will to do so, it often has to come from uh, even even one company isn't enough. You need to uh, you, you need to get coordination between multiple companies to agree to do things. That could happen. Uh, so. In effect, I guess even simpler than that, I would say start thinking about things from a more systematic perspective rather than looking at um, individual individual actors because the individual actors you're you can't shape them that much. I remember, God, I remember someone suggesting many years ago, oh, shaming people on Twitter with pop ups to like prevent them from acting too negative. And I was like, yeah, that, uh, sure, that'll work. They have that. It did show that there was some, it, it's one of those sort of like, uh, I don't, it's not attunement, but it's like, um, uh, 
eventually you become sort of inured to them. And like, if you want to yeah. you know, call someone a fuckwit, like you will. And it's just like, too bad. Yeah. Like I get, or, I get them sometimes and I'm like, no, actually that's what I really want to say, you know? Yeah. Or you, or you express yourself in ways that don't trigger it. I mean, it's like, you know, China's exactly. been trying to do this for a long time and, and with varying success. So uh, one thing, the thing know, is that yeah. it's like, oh, or uh, I think I quote this in the book, my favorite headline, this was from 2016, was it's time for the elites to rise up against uh, uh, against the ignorant masses. <laughs> like the mere fact right. that you have to write an article and publish it with that title <laughs> shows that it's not going to yeah. happen. One thing that I want to bring up uh, as we as we as we wrap here is you know, you, you wrote about Wittgenstein and I don't think we've ever yeah. brought up um, Wittgenstein on this podcast before. And I, I will admit that's that where I the yardstick heard. analogy is from actually. I already brought him up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm over the next period of, of, of time, I'm going to need to actually do a little bit more digging because a lot of his philosophy around language and words and the experience of words is so pertinent to this moment that we're in, right? This large language model kind of epoch that is upon us is exactly one in which, as you were talking about, like labels and labels being either self-asserted yeah. or applied to other people determines in some ways, like who you are to the system and what recommendations right. you receive. And so yeah. the degree to which there is not a label that is sufficient to describe you or your interests or, or for perhaps a negative space, which are negative labels, which are things that you haven't experienced yet could be an opportunity to essentially create you know, sort of a, a backlog of like, here are all the ideas that are still out there that you haven't yet discovered yet. And, yeah. you know, the, right, like it's sort of like negative space yeah, that, recommendation system. Well, well, I think we all go around assuming, you know, with this idea that things are more ground, that our language, linguistic expression, even our concepts are more grounded than they actually are. And right. if you look back at, uh, at, if you look back at the history, it's Concepts evolve at a at, a, at an at an incredible. I mean, as rate. we started, Bill Gates was like, "Oh, that's not the words I really mean. I mean these words over here." That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, or I, I was walking by a house, uh, an apartment complex yesterday, and I was like, "Oh, what, it was weird." And um, turns out that it was it, it used to be a hospital, and but it looked like uh, a little like fortress with um, with with circular. Uh, like a bunch of circular uh, cylinders connected together. And I looked it up and it's like, oh, it was created because at the time the, the thinking was that uh, corners spread disease. <laughs> that's why they had these round... No, this is really the reason. It was like, oh, I believe it. Yeah. That's why they've got these round cylinders, cylindrical things. I was like, so, <laughs> so um, yeah, there's so much that will get revised going forward, and we're expecting machines to grasp and track that evolution. It's going to be inexact, and yeah, you know, that's that's Wittgenstein's you know, contribution is to say that language is is that is the yardstick that you're measuring with another yardstick that that you don't have something to appeal to and say, okay, did I say that right or not? And in effect, we're we're all doing a bit of legislation and saying, okay, this is how I think language should be used uh, every time we speak. And well, I think now, it, it, now it, we're it, doing that. We're telling that to chat GPT. Right. And by speaking chat GPT is legislating to us as well. And that's, that's the. I think the thing, you know, just again, to like close out, what, one of the things that was really, that really stood out to me and why I think the concept of Megan X, um, appealed to me was, of course, with, with my relationship to the, the hashtag, it has created kind of flocking behavior 
within people where previously like there weren't you know words that existed that captured a certain you know idea or experience and that upon doing upon sort of like the invention in the flow of, of language you know whether it's like hashtag me too or hashtag black lives matter these were words that didn't have purchase previously and then right. through the feedback mechanisms and the speed of those feedback mechanisms now you can have broad participation by a set of people that previously perhaps were not franchised and yeah. so oh yeah 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 they're attract they act as attractors yeah absolutely. exactly and right. i mean i think i mean so this is my own philosophical bias which is that i you know i don't think language works the same online as it does in person that, that i think there's something fundamentally different about talking to people uh, uh mm. in that sort of disconnected way uh as opposed to speaking to them in an embodied world because basically you're taking away that much more grounding of okay like oh i'm pointing to this and we're speaking the same language and i think the way that gets compensated for is that you fold yourself into a, you know, a micro community that speaks the same language mm. and these terms right. become mm. identified it's not just the terms with which you identify yourself it's also a whole vocabulary you know, yes. if you're talking about wokeness, mm. that's very different than if you're talking about intersectionality. The mere use of those terms is enough to yes. continue. It's as, inclusive or exclusive. Uh, well, it's yeah, also right. it's interesting because everyone's like, mm. well, you would never mm. say that to me if I was in front of mm. you, but you'll comment and say terrible things to me on my YouTube post or whatever. But what you're saying is like the actual functionality of the language is mm-hmm. different. It, it, yes. It, yeah. I think I think so. Yeah, I think that if you look at it, like it can't make meaning in the way that it does in real life, or at least it does. So it's much more like like with memification and like the shorthand that 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 is how the not to use memes, but like that that's almost a grammar that is not used. Mm -hmm. It's used like we quote from movie lines and stuff to each other in person at a bar watching the football game or whatever, but it's not used as much as it is online f- for that. Yeah. So, so, so a way to think about like language as an operating system is like there's a bootstrapping method by which you kind of arrive at saying what is the sort of assumptions or primitives or um, yeah, and like I, I guess like language modules that we can take for granted and memes from movies only work if you are in the same operating system culture because you've seen the same movies, right? When there are right. memes and that are know. from Indian culture, Japanese culture, they don't make any sense to me because I haven't seen the movies and I have no idea what they're talking about. So that vernacular right. is locked on me because I'm in the wrong operating system. Yeah, and, and now you're getting, and I think the thing is, is that, you know, there's no overriding mass culture to the extent that there right. was 40 years ago, even when I was growing up. No one watches all, even, even, I mean, I don't think you could even get something like the end of The Sopranos anymore, where everybody was complaining about it. Like, you guys have Succession, show. right? Like, it's still, yeah. like, there's I mean, so I much content. Succession. I yeah. love Succession, yeah. but it's right. a yeah. very, it's a particular demographic. It's you know, it's a you know? and I was, like, momentarily in, like, The Last of Us niche, and we were all sharing yeah. memes. Well, but also, you know? think about, so, there, there's another thing. Think about the, the, the time shifting of it, where everybody yeah. watched yeah. MASH at the same time. Everyone yeah, exactly. now knows The Wire yeah. or or Breaking Bad. Sure. Not everyone, but but not everyone. but not everyone did in the same time scale as well. So like, there's there was a language yeah. for people that were on The Wire or Breaking Bad from day one. That yeah. for years, people that was a language that they didn't understand. Yeah, and now I don't. I think it's fra- I think it's fracturing even more. That I mean, I, The Wire. I think that's still gonna have a much bigger it has a much bigger 
resonance than succession will. And I love succession, so I'm not going to complain about it, but you know, um, uh, but I, one of the nice things about sort of like dropping into different subcultures is yeah, you'll stumble on stuff that seems to be, uh, that, that no one in your, you know, mm. peer group has ever heard of. I, someone brought up the, the Russian video game, uh, pathologic last night. And I was like, holy crap, I happen to have played that, but I can't say that I've talked to anyone else who has. It was really, it was, it was just like, what are the chances? And that's the thing is that there's the sheer volume of it is such that it's hard to make something for a mass audience that because there's that much less of a shared collective uh, knowledge. Well, okay. And so so la last thought though, like when you say mass audience, I mean, if there was, I don't know if it was 2 million or 70 million people that watched the last episode of MASH, but it these days, it was yeah. like 80 relatively million, speaking, yeah. 80 million, like what is a mass audience? If you can get out right. there to 80 million today, and that's a relatively modest audience, that's still as big as the greatest mass audience of the previous epoch. So yeah. is it just a matter that we are living with just a different scale of access and communication? I think and so. That that yeah, is, I think it's and the, the, the bar of content creation has dropped more too. I mean, soon oh, enough, course. people will literally be, you know, I could, you know, I'll be able to make a new Humphrey Bogart movie in 20 years right. uh, with, with, with whatever uh, machine 20 learning years, 20 are months. out there. I was so, going to say like 20 days Yeah, <laughs> with a runway. So, or... so I, I mean, maybe sooner, but that's the thing is that, that the bar of content creation and content yeah. distribution. Mm -hmm. So, and obviously there are people who are trying to, you know, keep, keep control of that, but it is slipping, uh, gradually. I think everyone will agree with that. Um, and I think that it's accelerating since, uh, interest rates, uh, went up, there's less money being fed into, um, you know, VC backed firm. And so there's that much less attempts to control sort of, you know, mm -hmm. what's popular and what's big, mm -hmm. uh, that, and that's so succession, you know, however much you like it, is uh, that idea of a prestige show, I think, is somewhat dying out as well, uh, simply because, uh, you know, I, can, I might be able to find something that I like more, uh, and so not enough cost less to produce. Not, there's never a critical mass for anything. Well, let's, uh, and, and let's not even get started about there was a time when everyone saw the same movie that wasn't a, a superhero movie. <laughs> like, okay. Um, we should wrap. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the plugs and then Chris will right. uh, close us out. Um, yeah, David Auerbach. Uh, the the book that we've been talking about mostly is Meganets: How Digital Forces Beyond Our Control Commandeer Our Daily Lives and Inner Realities. He has a previous book called Bitwise: A Life in Code. Uh, check those both out. Um, and uh, I, I'm gonna thank you personally, and now Chris is gonna thank you. Yeah, well, again, David, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you. This is great. Uh. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Um, where where shall people go to find more about you? Uh, either follow you on some social media platform so, or let's see. Uh, well, if you search on Meganets, you'll turn up. Oh, this uh, is the best thing. My, I my searched for yeah, Meganets. Yeah. Thing. You, yeah. you will find no, no, no. Uh, no. If you search I, for Meganets, I have, on I, have Amazon, a I have a sub you'll get, stack. You'll get uh, our stack. R-E-R and then stack. Uh, <laughs> I have a, that's our stack. 
Um, yeah, my name. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter as Auerbach Keller, which is a Goethe reference, uh, which no one ever gets, but it's a reference to <laughs> uh, So I should probably change that, but whatever. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm in the other usual spots too. But uh, reading the book, hey, that's 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 probably the best thing uh, to do. And I, for the coders out there, yes, I made it bitwise so that people would know that I had some idea what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Your own little self-label there. All right, well, David, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. Appreciate uh, it. Thank you so much for having me.